0: Welcome! You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print-impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. I'm Ernesto Sambrano. Today's article is by Alex Papademis from the December 2022 edition of GQ, the hardest-working drummer in Hollywood. Please note, this is a men's magazine, and as such, may include offensive topics or language. Travis Barker's whole career has always veered toward the unpredictable, but even he never could have predicted his surreal new reality. Thursday night, corner booth at Crossroads Kitchen, a vegan restaurant in West Hollywood, just before the dinner rush. Travis Barker shivers in a Threadbare Subhumans t-shirt. He could conceivably ask the staff to turn down the AC a little. He's an investor in this place, as it happens. Not to mention, you know, a rock star. But he doesn't. I think I'm, like, permanently cold, just because I spent the last four hours in my underwear, he says. Then he laughs. Even in the context of Barker's ever more improbable life, this day has been a weird one. He spent the afternoon standing around mostly naked while being measured, photographed, and scanned by representatives from Madame Tussauds, where he's being honored with the wax figure in his likeness. When it's suggested that he might be the first person from an American punk band to be thus enshrined, the museum has a Johnny Rotten, but not for example, a Joey Ramone. Barker says, Very cool. Then asks if they've made one for Lemmy from Motorhead. Answer, no. Strange day, strange week. On Tuesday, Barker was at the Kia Forum, playing Bad Reputation and Cherry Bomb, with the Foo Fighters and guest vocalist Joan Jett at a tribute to the late Foo's drummer Taylor Hawkins, who died suddenly in March. The gig was an honor in more ways than one. Hawkins and Barker had been friends since the 90s, when Barker was working for the city of Laguna Beach as a garbage man, living on his roommate's couch, and playing drums at dive bar gigs a few nights a week. Hawkins, who lived in Laguna, and would soon join Alanis Morissette's band, he'd meet Dave Grohl while touring with her, was a regular at those shows, and even back then, he could tell Barker had the goods. He would come up to me and be like, Kid, I swear to God, I come every week just to watch you play, you're a fucking star. And I'm like... No, I'm not. He would come every week we played. Barker remembers his apprenticeship in Laguna's dive bars as one of the happiest periods of his life, second only, he says, to the birth of his children, and right now. He had a place to live and enough money to pay for food and drumsticks. He went skateboarding and played music every day. Back then, he would have felt guilty, he says, imagining anything more like, say, joining an epoch defining band that would go on to sell tens of millions of albums for example, or producing and collaborating with scores of big-name artists from across the genre spectrum, or running his own record label, or marrying joyfully into what happens to be one of the most famous families on the planet, or putting his clout behind a clothing label, restaurants, or an organic vegan CBD gummy and tincture line. And yet all of this and more has come to pass. One day you're a drummer slash trash collector, and the next you're drinking wine with Iggy Pop, and when things like this happen to him, sometimes Barker wonders if he's dreaming. But that's the point. His dreams were never like this. Which is not to say it's been easy. In 2008, Barker was horribly burned in a private jet crash that claimed the lives of his longtime assistant Chris Baker and his security guard Chase Still, both close friends. Barker spent three months in the hospital, endured 26 surgeries, endless skin grafts, and a period of suicidal depression. He later told interviewers he'd offered friends a million dollars if they'd help him end his life. The only other survivor of the crash was Barker's best friend and musical collaborator, Adam, DJ AM, Goldstein. About a year after the accident, Goldstein died of a drug overdose in New York. Barker struggled with survivor's guilt and PTSD. At times, he says, I didn't know if I'd ever play music again. I didn't know if I ever wanted to go outside again. Barker has never cared for the truism that everything happens for a reason. I'll never think that about the people I lost, he says but he acknowledges that the crash saved him from a more tragic and common rock and roll ending. As documented in his 2015 memoir, Can I Say, Living Large, Cheating Death, and Drums, 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 the Barker who got on the plane was a textbook train wreck. Drowning his consciousness in weed and pills and Coupe de Ville's as his marriage to former Miss USA Shanna Moakler fell apart. I was going down a really fast-paced, dangerous path, he says. Surviving the crash gave him a second chance he's determined to live up to. There's not a day that goes by that I don't make the most of it, he says, that I don't appreciate it, and that I'm not grateful for it. Two weeks after Barker's date with Wax Dummy History, Blink-182 will announce a new album and a 2023 world tour, both of which will feature Blink co-founder and guitarist Tom DeLong, who hasn't played with the band since 2015. When we talk about Blink in late September, Barker doesn't tell me this is happening. At that point, DeLong's return to the fold is still a secret. But the external, pop-cultural reasons why a classic Blink reunion tour makes sense right now are anything but. When Blink were at their commercial peak in the early 2000s, critics wrote them off as juvenile and derivative. A dine-and-dash descendants. A boy band for kids who wore fake lip rings to school picture day. But legacy is hard to predict in real time. In the 20-plus years since Blink streaked through the streets of L.A., and into the hearts of impressionable Total Request Live voters in the video for What's My Age Again. They've become maybe the most broadly influential rock band of their era. They crossed over on such a large scale, and I think that was important for punk rock culture, says Avril Lavigne, whose 2022 comeback album, Love Sucks, co-produced by Barker. is her first release on Barker's label, DTA Records. They made it more mainstream, but also that's what got the CD into my hands, and how people could discover that type of music. Blink split up for the first time after releasing their self-titled fifth album in 2003, but their success had carved out space for bands like Paramore, Fall Out Boy, and My Chemical Romance to cross the streams of pop and punk in front of mainstream audiences as the 2000s gave way to the 2010s. More recently, and more surprisingly, and maybe more importantly, they've become a touchstone for TikTok bedroom pop producers and Zoomer SoundCloud rappers who learned to play power chords during quarantine. The Future of Punk and maybe pop music in general, is genre-agnostic, heavily medicated, and extremely online, born out of fast-imploding distinctions between influencer and rock star, hip-hop and guitar rock, white music and black music, therapeutic sincerity, and ironic trauma bragging. While Blink's early 2000s detractors wouldn't and probably couldn't have thunk it, a generation of young musicians who've never known a world without forever war, financial crisis, environmental calamity, and social media have reached back to the sounds of the past for an emotional vocabulary by which to vent their pain. And what they've pulled off the shelf is take off your pants and jacket, not Kid A. Part of the reason all those post-everything, unclassifiable internet-bred emo artists sound so much like Blink is that they've probably got Barker himself behind the boards, and often, the drums. Blink-182 proved that punk could go pop. What Barker's doing now is helping artists born in the genreless reaches of the internet go punk in order to go pop. In 2019, Barker co-produced and played on the single I Think I'm Okay with Machine Gun Kelly, a white battle rapper from Cleveland who was then best known for beefing with Eminem and who had never released a rock song before. Barker thinks this is why it was a hit on the radio. A rock band would probably be ignored if they did that song, he says, but it was different because it was Kelly's kind of coming like you'd never heard him before. Afterward, Barker remembers, Kells was like, I can't help but think, did we just get lucky with that one song, or can we make more fucking songs like that? The result was Tickets to My Downfall, which was both Kelly's first full-blown pop-punk album. I said, we're not going to rap on this album, Barker recalls, and his first platinum record. And when that did well, Barker says, doors were kicked down, and after that you saw the resurgence of that genre doing really well. A cynic would call this music cynical and you could certainly accuse Barker of aiding and abetting shameless-slash-clueless opportunists looking to suck up to modern rock radio programmers by draping themselves in borrowed rock cliches. On the other hand, anyone still policing who is and isn't entitled to dress in sing-punk, or self-identify as emo, is guarding a gate that's been broken since the day Malcolm McLaren first pimped out the Sex Pistols. Kelly might be fronting, but if you look at it from a Galaxy Brain Enough level, So is every punk-identified person who wasn't there the first time the Ramones played CBGB. Everyone thinks that someone else is a poser, but pretty much everyone on Earth is a poser. Reason's music journalist, Josiah Hughes, the co-host of the admirably exhaustive Blink-182 podcast, 155. As understood and practiced by artists like Kelly, punk or emo might be an abstract pseudo-genre, born of nostalgia, commercial expediency, and the same streaming age, Historical context collapse that fuels alt-throwback DJ parties like L.A.'s long-running Emo Night, where the definition of emo includes everything from post-hardcore to Linkin Park to post-Malone. But the imprimatur of an artist like Barker connects it to something resembling a tradition. I think that's why people turn to Travis, Hughes said. It's a vibe. It's a feeling. This melding and crunching together of different punk-related subgenres. He's like the king of punk-adjacent. Barker sits in the booth at Crossroads for just under two hours, consuming only one small coffee. His phone sits face up on the banquet beside him the entire time, lighting up more or less continuously with text messages and alerts. The one time it actually rings, he answers. Hey baby, he says. Hey, I'm gonna call you. I'm gonna call you. Yeah, as soon as my interview's done. I love you. Mwah. He hangs up and doesn't explain who was calling. He doesn't have to, and presumably, I don't have to tell you either. Barker met his first Kardashian in the early 2000s when he briefly dated Paris Hilton. Courtney's sister Kim, perhaps you've heard of her, was Paris' assistant. Travis and Courtney were platonic friends for years. In a 2017 holiday episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians, he and his kids dropped by to visit their Calabasas neighbors and Travis Frost's an anarchy symbol onto the side of a gingerbread house. The first rumors of them being more than friends made the rounds when they were seen leaving Crossroads Kitchen together in 2018. They went public as a couple last year, and, after a few months of intense and thoroughly documented PDA, got engaged in October 2021. The proposal itself was filmed for the Kardashians' new Hulu show, at what Barker says was Kris Jenner's request. Barker says he agreed on one condition. I can't see one camera, and Courtney cannot see one camera. Barker popped the question on a beach in Santa Barbara, in a heart-shaped rose garden that had been placed there for the occasion. The footage that aired on the show was captured via GoPros hidden in the foliage. A few months later, House Barker and House Kardashian gathered at Stefano Gabbana and Domenico Dolce's villa in Portofino, Italy, for a gallo wedding ceremony that was technically private, although anyone interested could follow the action on social media, where the Kardashians act as their own panopticon. Barker and Kardashian had already tied the knot by then, a few weeks earlier at a courthouse in Santa Monica, in front of Travis's father and Courtney's grandmother. Who are both too old to fly. It's worth noting that Barker has already been a reality TV husband once before on MTV's Meet the Barkers, which attempted to turn Barker and his then wife Moakler into a punk rock version of Jessica Simpson and Nick Lachey, who didn't stay married either. It ran for two seasons, and according to Barker, the level of disclosure it demanded makes his current part time reality TV gig feel like a walk in the park. There were cameras placed throughout my house, there were people living at my house, he says. It was insane, you know, and it wasn't really for me at that level. It was too much. These days, he says, the only time I really film with Court is when she asks me to, and I'm only around for some of it. She'll be like, hey, by the way, we're filming today, and I'm like, okay, cool. It doesn't change how I act or what I dress like, you know what I mean? There's a scene in a recent episode where Travis accompanies Courtney to the doctor for an egg retrieval procedure. When Travis is called upon to provide a semen sample, Courtney asks the doctor how much, you know, assistance she's allowed to offer. When this interviewer suggests that some people might not feel comfortable sharing events this intimate with every Hulu subscriber on Earth, Barker cheerfully replies, I don't give a fuck. I don't care if I'm coming in a cup or whatever, he says, it's real life. And if any of that can help people, seen Courtney's journey through IVF, which is super hard for a woman, you saw her struggle with it and talk about it. That's real. And there's however many millions of dudes that have to go give their semen for this same procedure. So it's like, Relatable, you know? I've never been fazed by any of that. Travis Barker does not know what happens after we die. He hopes it's something cool, like a situation where you can still get to hang around with your living loved ones, invisibly, while simultaneously somehow being reunited in heaven with those who've predeceased you. I think you could be present, but not be hurt, Barker says. This, he thinks, would be a cool way to exist. He believes this is possible, because he still feels the presence of all the people he's lost his mother, who died when he was 13, Chris and Che, who died on that plane, AM. He knows they're in some beautiful place, but also here with him. He knows Taylor Hawkins was watching him at that tribute show, so he tried to play harder and louder and wilder than everyone else, because he wanted Hawkins to see him and say, he honored me correctly. He went hard. Barker went to Catholic school for a few years. His parents were never, like, super strict about religion, but they went to church on Sundays. These days, he and Courtney go to church together sometimes. People rarely count the Kardashians among the world's highest-profile Christian entertainers, which is strange, not just because of the family's connection to equally high-profile Christian Kanye West, but because they've made their faith as public as any other aspect of their lives. The words Lover of Christ come after Momager in Kris Jenner's Twitter bio. Maybe this isn't a surprising thing to learn about a guy who's had a pair of praying hands inked on the side of his head since he was 19. But Barker says he's really close with a couple pastors, and adds, Yeah, I'm like Christian now, as if this is something he's just realizing, talking about it. He says he and Courtney pray every night, sometimes first thing in the morning, and before every flight. This is a new thing, too. Barker has spent years managing the trauma of the crash using every tool at his disposal. Therapy, running, boxing, breathwork, CBD, and probably more than a little bit of benign workaholism plus new tattoos of his parents and children to cover the burn scars on his back. But as of last year, he hadn't set foot on a plane since 2008. For years, just seeing a plane would freak him out. The smell of jet fuel reminded him of his time in the burn unit. When he had tour dates overseas, he took a boat. When Blink played Australia in 2013, they took the drummer from Bad Religion. At that point, he was divorced from Moekler, and he had survived the crash, and just to get past all of it, he says, he told himself a story about what he didn't need. Like, I'm good being single. I don't want to love anyone. I'm going to spend every day at the studio. He told himself he wouldn't fall in love, and he'd never fly again, which was a way of telling himself he'd never get over what had happened. And gradually, he sees this now. His life got small, stuck, fixed. And then he fell in love with Courtney, and he would sit and listen to her talk about everywhere she'd been and everywhere she was about to go, all of it made possible by planes and planes and planes, She'd been everywhere beautiful in the world, Barker says, that I've never even heard of. Finally, Barker says, I was like, If you ever want me to fly with you, just tell me eight to ten hours before. And one night, she told him. That night, Barker told her she could probably go home instead of sleeping at his place, which wasn't what they normally did. Because I was trying to get out of it, he says. But Courtney said she wouldn't leave. She's like, I'm going to spend the night with you. I'm staying the night with you, and we're going to go to the airport. She just knew and she stuck by me and toughed it out, and it was the best flight, and I wasn't scared once. That flight was to Cabo San Lucas. He flies all the time now. He can't wait to go back to Australia, to Japan, and he can't wait to travel just to travel, not to play a show. Anytime he's gone anywhere outside the U.S., it's almost always been a tour date. I'm like, I get to go and just, like, have fun? I didn't know that existed. He's learning how to be comfortable. It's a process. At the Hawkins tribute show this week, they had this lavish room we could hang out in, he says. Barker asked if he could chill in the hallway between sets instead, practicing drums on a stack of road cases until it was time for him to go on. The organizers, he remembers, were like, yeah, whatever, Travis. I'm back there going, I want to be uncomfortable. He knows how silly it sounds. Travis Barker, indisputable rock star, budding music business kingmaker, a famous man with an even more famous wife politely asking if he can be bumped down to shittier accommodations. But that's what it's like to be him, at least right now. When everything's perfect, it scares me, he says. I want some adversity during a show. I want it to rain and the show almost gets cancelled. I don't want to be too comfortable. I mean, my drum tech used to clean my cymbals, and I'm like, Daniel, I like the blood on my cymbals. It makes me feel good. He's a perfectionist. I'm like, just leave a little bit of blood on the cymbals. It just makes it feel like home for me, you know? That brings us to the end of today's article, The Hardest Working Drummer in Hollywood. If you want to learn more about Airs LA and the types of programs we offer, follow us by clicking on any of the social media links at the top of our webpages. If you like what you see or hear, please click the like button. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind, low vision, and print impaired listeners. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Ernesto Sambrano, and I'll be back soon with another article. Thanks for listening.